Well, I guess we might as well go ahead and get started here. Um, we'll have a few folks coming in uh, as it's just now quarter till, but that gives us the full 45 minutes to be able to work through the material this morning. Um, we were supposed to start into the subject of the nature of God in the Antonicene Fathers, but I guess I just started wandering about the landscape last time, and we didn't, we didn't get very far uh, in that particular, uh, that particular subject, unfortunately. So I'll try to be a little more disciplined today. Just reminder, of course, when I refer to the Antonicene Fathers, that's A-N-T-E, that is before Nicaea. Um, to have the proper foundation for uh, honestly understanding what happened at Nicaea, uh, which took place in which took place in thank you, wow, man, oh, man. we really need you know i 'm going to have to talk uh, to, the, to the elders about a, uh, a coffee maker because uh, that was bad that was uh, that was inappropriate. It was, it was, it was, yeah. I was about to say, in Nicaea. That really would have been worse, actually, um, to have said that. Council of Nicaea, which happened in Nicaea. Chandler? Sort of like, <laughs> sort of like asking something. Sort of uh, George Washington's white horse kind of thing? Uh, whatever, yeah. Um, I have no idea what that's about, but we will leave that alone. Um, so 325, to understand what happened there, uh, you have to understand what led up to it and um, uh, if anything we're gonna we're gonna make it through this church history series with all of you as uh, as living experts on the subject of the Council of Nicaea um, you'll you'll actually be walking walking along listening to people talking just hoping that you hear someone say something wrong about the Council of Nicaea and you'll leap uh, into the middle of the conversation and they will run away afraid of the strange person that just interrupted their conversation. So um, the doctrine of God in the Antonicene Fathers and then of course uh, you may recall uh, that last year pretty much around this time maybe a little bit after this time last year a, uh, I think it was like May uh, a, a controversy exploded. It had been bubbling under the surface, but a, a controversy exploded in evangelicalism on what's called the eternal functional subordination of the sun, the EFS controversy. And that's primarily focused upon the post-Nicene fathers, the writers after the Council of Nicaea, and how they interpreted uh, developments since the Council of Nicaea. So to be able to engage all that stuff, we need to have a, we need to have a foundation. And uh, so I, I do want to take just a little while uh, to make sure that we're all Trinitarians. <laughs> now that may sound like a very odd and strange thing. Of course we're all Trinitarians. Well, uh, you know, honestly, if, if, I, if I had a, a pile of paper nearby me, uh, I'm, I'm almost tempted. Uh, to uh, have everybody turn to the back of their bulletins or something like that and use the back uh, as, a, as a test sheet and just see how many of us really are Trinitarians. Because um, before the Council of Nicaea, uh, the perspective uh, that was responded to 
by many in the church and identified as a heresy was not, and there's, there are certain terms. I'm wondering if these are the uh, good ones or, no, these are definitely not the good ones. These are definitely not the good ones. No. Um, there are definitely some terms that would be good for us to know. And uh, I have been uh, encouraged to put these uh, on, the, on the board for appropriate spelling uh, by those who take notes. Um, the, when we think of the Arian controversy, Arius was the founder, and so it's the Arian controversy. This is what's going on at the Council of Nicaea. This is a form of subordinationism. So in Arianism, uh, the son is subordinated to the father. So the son is lesser than the father. Um, the spirit as well, but though the spirit was not the focus of the, of the argumentation at that particular point in time. There are, there's, there's really only one primary form of subordinationism. I mean, I guess you could divide it up. Uh, because you had, for example, in the early church, you had people uh, such as the uh, adoptionists. And the adoptionists uh, believed that Jesus became the Son of God, well, at different points in time. There were some uh, who would have said it at his birth, others at his baptism. Um, so there's different ways in which this was, uh, this was expressed. Um, but you have the adoptionist that Jesus is just basically a human being who is a, uh, adopted to a special calling or, or position uh, type, of a, type of a thing. And, uh, but then, but this in, in adoptionism, Jesus himself is not divine. Uh, Jesus is just a human being. So you have other forms of subordinationism uh, where Jesus is, well, Arius believed that Jesus was the greatest created being uh, that, God had, that God had created. Now, he was still a creation, but he was the greatest created being. So he's not just a human. And, uh, for example, uh, who frequently wakes you up on a Saturday morning when you're trying to get a, trying to get a little extra sleep in. Uh, but another form of subordinationist uh, theology, and uh, that would be Jehovah's Witnesses. And they believe Jesus is Michael the Archangel, who is the first and greatest of all of God's creations. And then through Michael, everything else is created. So Michael is the only thing that God directly creates, and then through Michael creates everything else. But as long as Jesus or the pre-incarnate son or second person, whatever terminology you want to use, as long as that person 
is on the other side of the divide between created and not created, then you have a form of subordinationism. And it can take, you know, there's lots of different flavors in, uh, in church history and uh, subordinationism. Um, so that was the, the argument at the, the Council of Nicaea. Before then, the Eastern churches especially, the Western churches hadn't really dealt with this that much, but the Eastern churches especially uh, dealt with a different perspective and fought against a different perspective. And this would be a form of various forms of modalism. Modalism. Now, what in the world is modalism? Well, um, there are different forms of it, even, even today. But the idea is that God exists in different modes. Oh, good. We can get started now. Whew. Man, we were starting to. The, the balance was so completely off, dude, that, uh, that you know, I was, I was standing over here just because the whole room's leaning this direction. But now we, uh, now we have balance back, and I can, I can, I can survive here. So uh, modalism. Uh, modalism is the idea that God exists in different modes. So one of the forms uh, could be that God exists sometimes in the mode of the Father, sometimes in the mode of the Son, sometimes in the mode of the Holy Spirit. And so these would be modes of existence of one person. And so... Sometimes this is called dynamic monarchianism. Um, there's, there's various words that have been used. A name became associated with it because he was teaching this. Uh, the name is Sibelius. So Sibelianism is also a subspecies of modalism. And the modalists are still with us. Uh, officially... Uh, the largest modalist denomination uh, is the United uh, Pentecostal Church uh, International, UPCI, uh, based in um, St. Louis, Missouri. And they're also known as the Jesus-only movement. And so uh, you'll run into these folks. Uh, they split off from what became the Assemblies of God back, what was it, 1905 or something like that, somewhere in the first decade of the uh, 20th century. And the primary issue was their rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so in their current official view, um, Jesus is two persons. In the current official view of the UPCI, Jesus, the, the Son, is a created being that came into existence uh, at his birth in Bethlehem. But he was indwelt by the one person. There's, they, are, they are Unitarians. They believe there's only one person of God. Was indwelt by the person of God who would be the Father. So Jesus was both the Father and the Son. But remember, the Son's just a created being. So uh, 
when Jesus prays, this is a schizophrenic activity. It's his uh, human side praying to his divine side. But it's all just one, it's all just an internal conversation because he's two persons. Um, and now, today, uh, the Father's mode or role is that of the Spirit. So they are Unitarians. They believe there's only one person of God. They deny the existence of divine persons. And that one person in the past was the Father, indwelt the Son, and now acts as the Holy Spirit. So it's just one, one person. They struggle a lot uh, to explain what, G, what, who, where, whatever Jesus is now. How does, how does Jesus intercede before the Father, for example? This is, this is a difficulty um, that's very hard. And of course, the passages that teach the preexistence of Jesus, um, they have to turn Jesus into a plan. So the Logos of John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, whereas with God, the Word was God. That was a plan, uh, not a person. And so there, God had this plan, and, uh, and that plan eventually became effectuated in, in Jesus. And so they're all over the place, and uh, there are modern representatives of them. One of the most famous uh, people around today um, that has been identified as uh, the next Billy Graham, Bishop T.D. Jakes, uh, comes from a modalist background. And about four years ago, uh, got together at this thing called the Elephant Room and uh, was asked questions about whether he was a Trinitarian. And he tried to say that he was, but if, if you understand this theology and listen carefully, um, he says he, was, he is uncomfortable uh, with the use of the term person and prefers the term manifestation. Well, that's classical uh, United Pentecostal uh, terminology because God manifests himself as Father, manifests himself as Spirit. He was manifest in the Son. These are just manifestations um, of the one person. And so uh, it's, it's pretty clear, especially when you listen to Jake's uh, sermons, whenever he touches on such things, uh, that he remains in the modalist camp and is by no means an Orthodox Trinitarian. Um, but you have a number of recording artists in the quote-unquote Christian community that are a oneness Pentecostal and things like that. And uh, most sadly, uh, a lot of confessions of faith of various denominations are not specific enough to weed these folks out. You could not be a modalist faithfully with the 1689 London Confession because it is clear on the existence of the three divine persons. But the Baptist faith and message of the Southern Baptist Convention, even though it's obvious that, you, that the intention of the authors would be, was to be Orthodox Trinitarian, the terminology is not clear enough to weed them out. Um, and so a non-Trinitarian confused group actually signed a statement that they were in agreement with the Baptist faith and message they could perform last year at the um, Southern Baptist Convention, uh, even though it's very plain, they don't actually believe the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. 
Which leads me to something I've said many times before, and that is how many, how many of these folks uh, do we have uh, sitting in the pews of evangelical churches? A number of years ago, before YouTube became uh, a big thing, late, late, late 90s, maybe right around 2000, um, when I would travel and speak, which I didn't do as much then as I do now, uh, one of the things I loved to do would, would be to role play, to go into a class and play a heretic. Um, it doesn't work now, uh, thanks to YouTube, but uh, it, it did back then. And I was at a very large Southern Baptist church in uh, Clearwater, Florida, and I was asked to speak to the junior high schoolers. And so I went in and I, he introduced me, the, the, the uh, youth minister, whatever in the world that is, um, that's just normally the guy that can't get the good gigs, so he's got to take care of the kids for a while. But uh, the youth minister uh, introduced me to the, to the kids as an elder from the Kingdom Hall. Well, that's actually highly effective. If you want to keep uh, eighth graders awake and actually have them listen to you, that, that's a very, very effective way of doing it. Uh, because not, not a one of them fell asleep or was, uh, of course, didn't have phones back then to be playing on, but um, that type of thing. Um, not, even, not even Sean's playing on his phone, which is actually unusual for Sean. But anyway, um, uh, I started, I started, uh, well, you see, I follow Sean on Facebook, so every time he does something during the service, my wrist vibrates. So, I mean, it's a dead giveaway. I mean, I'm sitting across the way, and, brrr, and I look, and Sean Cornell just updated, oh, really? That's what you're doing over there. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, anyway. Um, thought it was just a sound booth. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. New. Uh, we, are, we are way too connected, actually. Uh, when my wrist vibrates, uh, that's a little bit of a strange thing. Anyway, um, so I start dialoguing with the uh, youth minister. And uh, within 30 seconds, I had him spouting heresy. It was real easy. It's real easy. I mean, I said, so, so you're, tr you're a Trinitarian? Uh, yes, yes. So, so you believe that when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, that Jesus would identify himself as the Father? Well, yeah. Okay, that was easy. Uh, we're done. Now it's just a matter of uh, putting the bow on top and finishing, you know, putting a few little pieces of tape on, and, and uh, we have now wrapped up our brand new modalistic heretic. Um, and it wasn't that we had agreed to do this. He literally was sort of looking at me like, well, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And, well, because, you know, Jesus, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? John chapter 14. I and the Father are one. So um, uh, you, you believe Jesus is, uh, is both the Father and the Son? And see, in, in his mind, he's identifying Father as deity, and so he wants to defend the deity of Christ, and it just took, it took just a little, little bit of, of work to get him spouting modalistic heresy, which the uh, early church, before the Council of Nicaea, uh, under the name of Sabellianism, had identified as a heresy, because it's a, it is a Unitarian uh, uh, belief. It, de it denies that there is more than one person that shares the divine being.
And I've often said, I, I think, if, if we did give a, a quiz out uh, at the vast majority of evangelical churches that even have a statement of faith, I mean, how many churches there are today? There are churches today that literally, when it comes to this, if they have a statement of faith, basically say something along the lines of, well, you know, we, we think it's more humble to just allow God to be God. And so there's been this theory in the past and this theory in the past, but we just, we just worship God. You know, that sounds good amongst millennial postmodernists, Right. I mean, you don't want to be arrogant. You don't want to be exclusivistic. You just want to be very inclusivistic. That's, the, that's, that's what your everyone's supposed to be. Uh, the problem is that one of the primary things that separates Christianity from paganism is the fact that God has revealed himself. He wants his people to know him and hence to worship him in spirit and in truth. We don't worship an unknown God. Uh, but if you basically say, well, you know, we, don't, we, we, we just don't know, but, you know, we just, if it feels good, do it. That's, that's, that's not a, a, Christian, a Christian perspective. So it is important for us to have some foundational understanding uh, of what was being dealt with at the Council of Nicaea. Because a lot of people have the idea that these councils that uh, what happens in these councils, and see if you didn't write, now it's all, it's all gone. It's, it's, you'll never, well, actually, you actually can still sort of see it. But um, These councils didn't get together and uh, you know, just make stuff up. Uh, generally, there was a very focused question that was being laid before the group, and since the controversy with Arius had been uh, broiling over for years, uh, it was a, a pretty clear question, and, and it had to do with the nature of the sun, the nature of the sun. But there were fundamental foundational things that, that, that go before that. Most of you have seen um, a triangle used uh, in regards to the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and you put Father, Son, and Spirit you put God in the middle, and it says, is, 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 is not, is not, is not. Anybody ever seen that one? So, you know, it distinguishes between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, but uh, basically says that each uh, shares one being is God. Okay, well, uh, I prefer a different form here, and, oh, that's a terrible triangle, isn't it? Well, it's good enough. Um, yeah, well, that's okay. Uh, the one I have in my... my Keynote presentations, uh, really nice. But um, rather than going that way, what I think we should do is look at the foundational doctrines uh, that forced early Christians to the doctrine of the Trinity. They had nothing to do with triads of gods, paganism, all the rest of that kind of stuff. As, as common as that is on the internet, and unfortunately in the teaching of many a university professor, um, I guarantee you, your, uh, your young people will get hit with this. And if you are a young people, you will get hit with this. Um, it has nothing to do with any of that. The 
reality is that the uh, formulations of the doctrine of the Trinity were forced upon the church by the biblical revelation itself. And there are three fundamental truths that are revealed in Scripture that must be taken together. And all of the errors that we've seen down through church history have resulted from a rejection of one or more of these fundamental truths. Or if you try to exalt one truth above the other truths to where those truths become imbalanced, same thing. Um, the idea from the Christian perspective is God has spoken. Uh, what he gives to us in scripture, he wants us to have. And that it's important for us to have these, uh, these divine truths. I have to fix the, I'm sorry, it's just, it's going to drive me crazy uh, to have. That's a little better. That's a little better. Um, the first of these three divine truths is the one doctrine that, uh, you know, people have asked me, you know, when you look at the early church fathers, um, you see a lot of disagreements. You see a lot of agreements, too, but you see a lot of disagreements. Um, what is the one thing you could identify as being a universal belief amongst all the early writers? And I would say monotheism. Uh, the fact that there is only one true God. Um, this separates us. Uh, the, the monotheistic faiths uh, are uh, fundamentally different from any type of polytheism. There's different forms, by the way, of polytheism. If you've ever thought about it, um, there is in you know polytheism the belief in more than one God. But there are subcategories, and one of the most important of these is called henotheism. And henotheism, again, if you go to the university, if you go to almost any seminary anymore, um, <coughs> what you'll be taught is that the majority of the Old Testament is not monotheistic, it's henotheistic. And what does that mean? Henotheism is the idea of one primary God, but the allowance for the existence of subordinate deities. Now, some might say that the Bible's henotheistic because you have one God, Jehovah, but then you have the angelic host, who are supernatural creatures, um, but they are still creatures. Well, that's really not what henotheism is, is referring to because the, the angelic host are clearly created. They're not eternal. And exactly how these lesser deities relate to the major deity is going to you know, vary from henotheistic faith to henotheistic faith. But it is very common in uh, seminaries uh, for you to be taught that the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is this mishmash of 
different sources badly edited together uh, is how it's presented. Um, that it's primarily a henotheistic document with Yahweh as the head of the council of the gods uh, and then there are all these other gods uh, underneath Yahweh. Yes, sir? Is that what Michael Heiser teaches? Like well, council kind of thing? well I, I have some serious problems with, uh, with Michael Heiser's uh, views. I think it does tend toward that, but not in a overly gross fashion. Would he deny that he's henotheist? I, I, I would think so. I haven't had any conversations with him. My, primarily, my primary interaction with Heiser has been with his, I think, uh, misunderstanding of Psalm 82.6. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the primary thing. He's written a book that I have not read uh, that a lot of folks just think is, is the best thing since sliced bread, but there's a lot of books like that out there. So okay. uh, anyway. Um, so uh, you have these things. Monotheism, absolutely one being of God, eternal, uncreated, the source of anything else that exists comes from this one God, hence the creator of all things. And again, uh, if, if you recall last year or the year before last, whenever it was, we did the uh, holiness uh, code series, one of the things we did was we talked about how radical an idea true full-on monotheism is in the ancient world. Um, the, the, the imaginings of men uh, would always move away from this. They want a God that was small enough they could control. Uh, the idea of a God who is the creator of all things was a, was a radical perspective. Um, and the idea that he had revealed himself and revealed how he wanted to be worshipped, again, a radical perspective that resulted in the Jews before Christianity uh, being hated by many in the ancient world because it was considered such an arrogant idea. It was considered an arrogant idea. How dare you say that your God is the only God? Who do you think you are? And you hear that today. It, the, we, what we're really seeing in secularization is a re-paganization of Western culture. It's going back to the old pagan gods. Um, except now, instead of them being living up on Mount Olympus or uh, living the thunderclouds and stuff, it's us. We are the new gods because we can determine what, if we're a female today or a male today or something in between or, uh, you know, 45 other different options and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's repaganization uh, is what's taking place around us. And so um, this idea of just abject arrogance is, is why the early Christians, for example, were called atheists. You know, I mentioned this to you before, but the early Christians were called atheists. Not because they didn't believe in a god, but because they did not believe in the existence of the gods. Uh, they were monotheists, and that was considered to be an incredibly arrogant, um, and from the Roman perspective, um, anti-Roman. I mean, you weren't a good citizen because you were causing division in the state. And this is going to become important because 
what happens once uh, Constantine becomes emperor, 313, 314, that time period, depending on exactly where you figure that out as far as all the wars and everything else goes. Um, he's trying to consolidate power in the Roman Empire, and he does not want a division taking place amongst the largest growing religious group under his, uh, under his control. And so that's why he steps in, is he recognizes that religion has great political power. So division in religion can result in division in society. And even before Constantine came along, when the Roman Empire was persecuting Christians, you know, they saw the Christians as being traitorous to the Roman cause. They were not fostering unity. Uh, we all need to you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya and, and get along. And, and uh, that, this, this idea, especially together with the Lordship of Jesus Christ, just, just didn't fit. So I need, to get, I need to at least finish this today. <coughs> Monotheism. <coughs> I frequently ask folks, just, you know, if you've been a Christian for many years, how many verses without using the last book of the New Testament called Concordance um, or the search parameter in, uh, in your olive tree Bible software on your phone? Um, could you give right now the teacher is only one true God? And you might say, doesn't everybody believe that? No. Obviously, you know, dealing with the Mormons, the Mormons do not believe there's only one true God. They believe there's an unlimited number, an infinite number of true gods. Now, they only know of three, um, but there are an infinite number of gods out in the universe. Uh, it's not a, a, a topic we normally have to defend and, and define, but it is fundamental and foundational to the Doctrine of the Trinity. We are monotheists. Uh, our uh, Muslim friends say we are not. Uh, it's pretty clear the author of the Quran thought that we were not, uh, but we are. It is the central affirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity. There is only one true God. So what are the other two doctrines? Well, uh, we have the existence of three divine persons. And, boy, it's really hard to write like this. We have the equality of persons. So, this, is, this one, the equality of the persons, that's, that's normally where the argument's at with the Jehovah's Witness at the door. Because they're subordinationists, and so they believe um, that there is an order to the persons, and there is, in the sense that we have to have some way of recognizing who's who, and the Father does not take the same role in salvation the Son does, and the Son does not take the same role as the Spirit does, and so there are certain personal attributes and actions by which we can distinguish between the persons. But what we affirm is that each one of them equally partakes in that one being that is God. God's being cannot be cut up into, into thirds. You cannot cut God be, God's being up into one-third, and the Father has one-third, and the Son has one-third, and the Spirit has one-third. That's, that's not a possibility. Each shares fully in the divine nature. Each is fully God. And so normally the argumentation is on that side in regards to the equality of the persons. Uh, 
uh, and well, why did Jesus say the Father is greater than I am, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where most people are really confused in their thinking is the very existence of three divine persons. Because the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, that's really where the, the, the hard part is for most Christians. Who am I praying to? You know, I've said it many times, you listen to, you listen to public prayers and you find out how many non-Trinitarians uh, are, are around you. Um, uh, there's, there's many times I will hear, and, and sometimes it's just because in the person's own mind they've sort of wandered, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, uh, Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for, for the time to come to you in prayer today. And, and our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for dying for us on, on Calvary's tree and loving us so much and coming to dwell within us. The father didn't die on Calvary Street. Uh, that was the son. So who are you addressing? And who's come to dwell within us? Well, it's the spirit. Now, the father and the son make their abode with us by the spirit, but I hear people confusing father and son in prayer all the time, which means there's a, there's a confusion in worship as well uh, because the existence of three divine persons and what the difference between being, the one being of God, and three divine persons is. We distinguish between being and person. Being is what makes something what it is. Person is what makes someone who they are. And so there's one divine being, cannot be chopped up into lots of different parts, uh, but that one divine being is shared fully by three divine persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what this triangle up here allows us to do, if you deny monotheism, if you deny this end, the other two will point to the resulting error that we see in church history. So if you deny monotheism, you end up with polytheism. So you have three divine persons, they're equal, but you get rid of monotheism, you end up with three gods. If you, if, you, if you deny that there are three divine persons, you have an equality of persons in monotheism, and you end up with modalism various forms of modalism, but those two then point to the resulting error. And so it's pretty easy to figure out the last one. If you deny the equality of the persons, you have monotheism of three divine persons, you have to subordinate them. So you have subordination. Subordinationism. So uh, pretty much every uh, doctrinal error uh, that we would be dealing with comes back to this. Now, th there is a range of doctrinal errors that have to do with the person of Christ. Eutychianism and Nestorianism, we'll get to those later on, which really wouldn't be defined by this. That, that will require us to look into what's called the hypostatic union. But if you really want to be prepared to uh, discuss, defend, explain, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, then what you want to be able to do is to go into God's word on these three divine truths and say, look, here's what scripture teaches. Uh, this is what the early church was struggling with. And you have the plain affirmation of the deity of Christ. He's called God. You have clear 
uh, texts on absolute monotheism. Uh, there is only one God, Yahweh. Jesus is identified as Yahweh. In the New Testament, um, you have places where, for example, in Isaiah 53, Yahweh places our sins upon the Messiah. So there's a differentiation made. Yet in the New Testament, you have Jesus identified as Yahweh. So what do you do with that? Well, then you need to realize Yahweh is a name for the being of God shared by three persons. Uh, so the Father can be identified as Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, the Spirit's the Spirit of Yahweh. Um, that's the only way to put those things together. The subordination says, no, 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 we'll just, we'll just reject the passages that identify Jesus as Yahweh or the Spirit is that, that, that we'll, just, we'll just reject those. So we'll mistranslate them or say that's not what it's saying or whatever. Uh, that's how they get away with it. Um, so if you, if you want to have the, the most solid ground for answering questions on this subject, it requires you to have a knowledge of where the Bible teaches the three foundational doctrines. Because then when you start talking with someone, and you start asking just a few basic questions, fairly quickly you begin to discern where their problem is in those three divine teachings, and you can go to the Word of God. You know, I'm, 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 you've, you've never heard me and never will hear me suggesting that what you should do is go to the Nicene Creed uh, or to the post-Nicene Fathers and say, oh, no, 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 you're wrong about that because Basil the Great said. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't wonderful things to be learned from Basil the Great and that Basil the Great didn't say some great things, which may be why he was called Basil the Great. I don't know. But uh, uh, that's not the foundation for why we believe what we believe. And in fact, this again, you know, like I said last week, gets us to, be, to thinking about the authority of such things as like the Nicene Creed, where does that authority come from? Does it have an inherent authority in and of itself? Or is it only a derivative authority? Um, because at the time of the Reformation, these were, these were vital questions. And there are a lot of people saying, hey, if, if, if we can overthrow the authority of the Fourth Lateran Council in regards to transubstantiation, why can't we overthrow the authority of the Nicene Council in regards to the doctrine of the Trinity? And on the exact same basis. Um, so these are questions that are valid questions. Yes, sir? At this point, did all the participants, did they have full access to the scriptures? Yes. Yes. Yes, they did. So written the same scriptures, they differ on, I see. Yeah, in fact, what's fascinating is that um, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever once we get to the Council of Nicaea. Remember, tattoo this on your brain. There was no discussion of the canon of Scripture at the Council of Nicaea. There is no evidence from any source whatsoever of any discussion of or dispute about the extent of the canon of Scripture. Why do I emphasize that? Because you go to the internet, you will find statement after statement after statement. That's where they decide there are only going to be four Gospels. They threw all these other Gospels out and all the rest of this stuff. There is not a scintilla 
of original evidence from any meaningful historical source to substantiate any of that. Um, but it is fascinating that um, before an official canon list is produced, and the first one that would match exactly what we have in the New Testament today, uh, about 369 from Athanasius, um, 40 years before that, there's no argument amongst, even, you know, even though you've got two different, you actually have three different sides, as we'll, as we'll see it in Nicaea. There's three different groups represented there. No argumentation over what is and what is not scripture at all, which tells you that that was not a big topic, which means there was pretty much agreement already that existed at that time. Uh, it just hadn't been focused upon as far as a controversy yet. So uh, definitely, definitely. Okay. Um, uh, you're going to have uh, Brother Callahan for the next few weeks because I leave Friday. I'll be teaching in um, uh, Pachasrum and Johannesburg, South Africa, and then uh, uh, debates and teaching in uh, London the last week before I get home. And so I've got a long trip ahead. So uh, prayers appreciated for that. Let's uh, close our time order. Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity of considering your revelation. Uh, as you reveal to us what you would have us to know, that we might worship you in spirit and truth. That's what we desire to do now as we go into the service. May you be honored and glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.